So at this point, and I wanted to do it before we sing our second hymn, I'm going to read the reading in Luke chapter 2, because we sing a paraphrase of part of this, the part we're going to be looking at. And so I'm going to read this awfully familiar passage, which I hope we will be able to understand afresh uh, and concentrate upon that the Lord will help us to do that as we read the first 20 verses of the second chapter of Luke's Gospel. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered, with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now they were, in the same country, shepherds, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you, you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marvelled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. During the war, Winston Churchill was in for one Christmas in America and he went, was taken to church by Franklin Roosevelt and they sang that hymn and uh, Churchill had never heard it. Uh, it was known in America, he brought it back really with him uh, and it's surprising, isn't it, to think that that's only been sung here for something in some of our lifetimes uh, and has become so well known and so often sung at Christmas. Some good things come out of America, uh, including some hymns. Um, so uh, I want to turn with the passage to the passage 
that we read, and really from verse 8 onwards, but in particular that great phrase of the angel who said, verse 11, there is born to you this day in the city of David a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And I prepared this on the expectation or at least hope that there might be some people who come in and they've just come in and they've never heard the gospel. And I was going to preach it with a very much evangelistic uh, emphasis. Uh, But I'm going to change the emphasis slightly, though not what I'm saying really, uh, to us as Christians to try to get us to see afresh, because it's so difficult, because this is so familiar, to see afresh the wonder of what is going on here. A saviour. There's three titles here, aren't there? A saviour. Why do we need saving? What do we, in, in ordinary language, you save someone from danger, don't you? You save a man from drowning by throwing him a life belt. You save someone from a burning building if you have the courage to and the strength and you run in and you get hold of them and you put them on your shoulder and carry them out. You save people from other dangers too, don't you? You warn them against things. You put up signs saying, don't go any nearer, you'll fall off the cliff. You warn people about scams and say, if someone rings up and says, I'm from your bank, please transfer all your money to this account. You don't do it. You warn people, there's so many pitfalls in life, aren't there? And things we need to be warned against. Uh, we used to be said, don't believe everything you read in the newspaper. Then they say, don't believe everything you watch on the TV. Uh, Both of those are still true. And don't believe everything you see on the internet either, especially because the way the algorithms work, if you look at something that's wrong, they'll think, oh, you agree with that, and they'll keep giving you more and more that's wrong and just reinforcing your (laughs) error. There's so many things I could stand here, couldn't I, for half an hour and just tell you things to avoid. But of course... Jesus came, didn't he, to deliver us from the danger of judgment leading to eternal hell. And that danger caused by sin, sin which entered the world uh, through Adam and as Paul says in Romans that in him all sinned. And Adam, our federal head, the one whom God treated as a representative, he didn't have to test Everyone, he tested one man who was at that time perfect in the sense of sinless and Adam fell and failed the test and brought us all down with him and just as Adam then immediately turns away from God in fear and hides and that is, isn't it, the whole picture of this world. We think of powerful people in this world who are trying to destroy Christianity And we could attribute many motives to them. Hatred of God, the scripture would speak of that. Ignorance, pride. But we have to add in fear. Fear of what it might be if it were true. Fear of hearing. Fear of other people hearing the gospel and being turned to Christ. And that is where so much of of this opposition we're facing on these different attitudes isn't it now people saying you know here is we are saying homosexuality is right transgenderism is right and you mustn't tell anyone they have to be converted you mustn't tell anyone they have to repent it's the whole fear 
that people do repent and are converted and are saved and that the people who are opposing this message they fear that someone will find something they haven't got and not only that they fear that these people might indeed be delivered from judgment and they themselves will be lost they will never admit that but that is the truth and so salvation is from sin and it is from judgment and it is from hell and it is as Billy was saying this morning from alienation from God which is what sin is it's, it's turning aside from God it's hating God and here we are made in God's image here we are you could paraphrase this couldn't you I want to put it this way this didn't happen as far as we know but just imagine that there in the Garden of Eden and God makes Adam in his image and you read then in Genesis then suddenly an angel of the Lord came down and said what a great thing God has done and he could have done because it was a great thing for God to make a creature in his own image and how far we have fallen and then God steps in in his infinite love and a saviour is born to us we know that we don't love God as we should and the problem is and even as Christians we have to remind ourselves don't we the problem is we know we don't love God as we should but we have to see that that is sin and call it out for what it is sin against a holy God it is not just some slight imperfection in us we do not love God and that is sin. We know that we do wrong things to others and we must see that they are sins in the sight of a holy God. And we cannot make ourselves different. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And even if we could make ourselves perfect today, we cannot pay the immense past debt of sin that we have piled up. And God has sent us to save sent Jesus to save us from this he has sent Jesus to save us from a state which we don't like to think of because it's so terrible but the Lord Jesus spoke of it more than anyone else and called it an outer darkness and a fire that doesn't go out and a worm that never dies he came to save us from the awful prospect of always being what we are of always being sinners. No worse perhaps than if, if we died, if you died today, you would be as sinful as you are. And you'd always be as sinful as you are. And therefore you would always be separate from God and under his just judgment and bewailing that that was so. And we need to remember, as Billy said again this morning, he was thinking more, wasn't he, of the, the world situation. I'm trying to bring it down now to the personal situation. Both are necessary. We need to see the bad news before we fully understand the good. We need to see the light of Christ against the darkness of eternity before we appreciate him and love him as we should. God has provided the way of escape in his love. And that way is called Jesus. Because that's what we're told, aren't we? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
says, presumably another angel, I don't know, it might have been the same one, another angel to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. Mary is told, isn't he? Isn't she? She's told uh, that you will call him Jesus also. Uh, and they're both told this. This is the name. You shall call his name Jesus. Luke 1 verse 31. Jehovah who saves. The one who is not just a saviour who is sent, but the eternal second person of the triune God made man for us. One who can be a saviour, one who is equipped to be, one who in his being is able to be a saviour. The one who we are to proclaim and the one to whom then we must listen uh, continually to the proclamation of. We, we need the gospel proclaimed to us all the time. We sing something, tell me the old, old story, for I forget so soon. We need the proclamation. We don't need to prove it. There is a place for proof of certain things, but mainly we are told, aren't we, in the scripture, not to go and prove what, how can you prove to, to a sinner uh, that the gospel is true? You might be able to try and prove that they've got wrong ideas about certain things, but you can't prove. You could, you might, if you could prove that this man was born at this time in this place and did everything that it says in the Bible, amazingly, and died on a cross and even rose from the dead, even rose from the dead, you would not by that have proved who he is. People would say, well, you've got an explanation. I haven't got one, but there might be another one. You can never prove, this is the failure of apologetics used as an evangelistic tool. You can never ever prove to the mind of a sinner the truth of the gospel. You can prove to Christians truths because they have the faculty to understand. You cannot prove to an unbeliever that the gospel is true, but we're not called to. We are called to proclaim. We are called to declare. We are called to be those who go and blow the trumpet and shout good news from God. Just like the angels did. They said, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all the people they did to the shepherds. The shepherds, verse 17, went and made widely known the saying that was told them concerning this child. They couldn't prove this baby was who the angel had said but they believed it so they went and told others and by the grace of God surely others believed also so who is this baby well he is Christ the Lord let's look at those two titles for a little while we, we tend to use Christ don't we as, as a because you see often in your Bibles Jesus Christ you tend to almost use it as a surname and it isn't a surname, it's a title. Often in, in the Greek text it's Jesus the Christ. And that's the point, the Christ, the Messiah. The word is, the Messiah is the Hebrew word, as you know, I'm sure. Christ is the Greek word, and it means the anointed one. And the idea of anointing is to set someone apart to something. We've seen a, an illustration of that, haven't we, in, in this year of the anointing of King Charles. Though you don't actually see that bit, they go and do that bit in secret. 
uh, and you're told that's what's happening. But that's the point, to set someone apart. Christ is set apart by God to do his saving work. God anointed people in the Old Testament. We read of Elijah anointing Elisha the prophet and Elisha went and taught God's truth and did many miracles. So he's a picture of Christ, but he's not Christ. You read of Aaron, the great high priest who offered sacrifices. And Jesus offered himself. So Aaron is a picture of Christ, but he's not Christ. You read of kings like David who ruled, were anointed and ruled justly, though you also read reader of kings who didn't rule justly but even David as we see on several occasions fell into all sorts of different sins he was anointed by God to do the work he was given but he is not the Christ because these men and if you add them all together Elisha and Aaron and David and anyone else added together they could not save anyone from sin including themselves for they were sinners and they themselves died. We need the sinless man who lives forever to save. We cannot be saved by someone who is sinful. We cannot be saved from etern for eternity by someone who dies. And we need at Christmas time and always to remind ourselves, don't we, of the Lord Jesus it's we can think of him and we can talk with him and we can have fellowship with him and we can, and yet we can still find that we confine our thinking in ways where we, unless it's brought to our attention, we, we don't remember every facet of his being. Here is the one who is utterly without sin, who is made like us in every way, but without sin. There's the stress, isn't it, that Paul gives. And here is the one who has eternal life in himself. In him was life, says John. Before he ever came into the world, it can be said of all eternity, in him was life. Here is life come. Here is sinless life come, and he's come, and he's born in Bethlehem. And he's proclaimed. He's proclaimed to Mary. Go back into chapter 1 and verse 33. Uh, it says of him, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. And in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You see, Mary, how much did Mary understand at the time? No idea, not all of it. Uh, we're told she pondered these things anyway. But, but she's told two things there, isn't she? She's told that the baby, her baby, her baby, is going to be one who will live forever and rule forever, and that he is, unlike any other human being, the Holy One. It's enough to be told in one afternoon, isn't it? I'm going to tell you some more, but that's because we, we've heard this before. I would hesitate to tell you all I'm telling you now if I thought none of you had heard it for the first time. Because there's a lot, isn't there? It's an amazing, many-faceted truth that we have to proclaim about Christ. 
and he was proclaimed to Mary as the eternal one and the holy one. And he was proclaimed to the shepherds as the Christ. And he's proclaimed to us today as the Christ and not just as the Christ but who is Christ the Lord. And we know that the word the Lord is used often in the New Testament to talk of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's often used also to speak of God the Father. Indeed, in, chapter, in verse 15, in this very passage, the, the shepherds, let us now go to Bethlehem. They've been told Christ is the Lord. And then they say, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Clearly, they're not talking about the baby has made it known. They're talking about God the Father. And you go on into chapter verse 20 and you read that they are there were praising God that God is the Lord verse 26 uh, Simeon he had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ you see it's, in, it's inescapable isn't it the exact same title that is given to the Father is given to the Son. And remember who these people were. They were not people who had the theological knowledge that we have. They were not people who had heard Jesus explaining what he does about the Trinity in John 14 and 15 and 16. These were monotheists of the strictest kind. These were people who, in the midst of a pagan world which worshipped lots of gods, gods many and lords many, as the Apostle says, they prided themselves, but they, in a sense, rightly uh, could say, we are those who have not been led astray to worship gods many and lords many. We believe the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that distinguishes us from everybody else. And the people around them would say, yeah, that distinguishes you from us. You're atheists, because you don't believe in all the gods. This, they were absolutely set, there is one God. And yet right from the beginning of the proclamation of the gospel, the Son of God is given the same title as the Father who they would think of, here is the Lord, he is in heaven, here is the Lord and he is on earth. The God-given name given to Mary there in chapter 1 and verse 31, you will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, Jesus, the Lord who saved, Jehovah who saves. And told to, to in Matthew 1 and verse 21, to Joseph, where he is told too that you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people, it's the Lord. The Lord is the only person who has people. Who else has people? Well, a human king might say, I've got my people, but they're not really those who he possesses, though he might think so. It's the Lord's people. Here is the Lord who saves. This is the incarnation, isn't it? This is what we remember at Christmas. This is God who has become man. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save his people from their sins. And what does that mean? It means that this is fulfills. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. 
the one who came into the world by the virgin conception. We talk of the virgin birth, don't we, and that's important. But more important and fundamental is this, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. That there was never a time when there was a human being who would become Jesus of Nazareth, there was never a time when there was such a one who was only human and not God. It's the action of God becoming a new human being. That is what Christmas is about. So we read that Mary was betrothed to Joseph and before they came together, Matthew 1 verse 18, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, uh, one, verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, verse 35, Mary is told, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy One who is to be born of you will be called the Son of God. Mary, Joseph, both told, because they needed to know that this is the one who is coming. This is this baby. He is God. And therefore he is now becoming man. That's what's happening in you, Mary. This is the one who was found when the shepherds, we read, uh, came and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Verse 16, this is the one who is in the manger. God of God. This is the one, always God. Right from the very moment of his conception, the Holy Spirit coming and by his power Mary conceives without any intervention from Joseph. She conceives the one who is the eternal son of God and yet now he's man as well. And that, that, that's the amazing reality, isn't it? How far this is from the sort of baby thinking that when the world gets its act together a bit and says Christmas perhaps isn't just about mince pies and buying lots of presents and drinking too much and having parties and all sorts of things, perhaps somewhere buried we've forgotten but we'll see a couple of cows because somewhere there's a baby involved. Now what do you do when you are presented with a newborn baby, not your own? We can give this illustration, I mean, you know, there are three, aren't there, at the moment, praise God, in the church, uh, babies, not totally newborn now. And what do you do if, if, if there is the mother and she comes for the first time, like Tasha did, Ruth Ann did, and Jane did, uh, and uh, yeah, that's true, didn't Judith did as well. So we've had four this year, so you had plenty of opportunities to understand my illustration. And there is this mother standing there with this baby in her arms. And what do you go up to do? What do you do? Well, I don't know about you. I'm a man. And I tend to sort of say, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. But, but some people, not just women, some women, some men, will say, ah, oh, what they? And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh, isn't he sweet? And I sometimes look and I think, well, yes, maybe. It's, 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 but, uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe they look sweet. Oh, maybe, yeah, I can't see much of them. They're all buried in clothes anyway. Um, I always think that newborn babies either look like monkeys or pigs, but never mind. They're not monkeys or pigs, and it is an R moment. 
And there's nothing wrong with the R, but there is something very wrong with the R if we start bringing Jesus down to that level. And just the sentimentality. This is not an R moment. This is an R moment. The shepherds found that, didn't they? When the shepherds went away, they did not, I think, go away saying, we saw a baby, wasn't he sweet? They went away saying, this is the saviour. This is Christ the Lord. That was what was told them, verse 17, concerning this child. And if they'd gone away and people, they went back to their wives or whatever and they'd said, what did the baby look like? And they might not have been able to answer that, weren't they? What colour were his eyes? Well, perhaps... From their race, they usually had the same colour. But what colour were their eyes? What colour was its hair? What did it look like? Did it look like its mum or its dad? What did it weigh? They <laughs> said, I've got a clue. But it's Christ the Lord. And that is the great truth, isn't it, that we are celebrating. And how is it that this Saviour saves us? Well, we know the answer. I could get any one of you up here and you could. You might fumble around with the words a bit. But you could declare in a few sentences, how is it that we are saved from our sins? By the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word cross would come in straight away, wouldn't it? And bearing our sin and dying in our place under the wrath of God. And you can't remember Christmas aright unless you remember Easter. Because it makes no sense otherwise. You have a story which is begun if you stop at the nativity, and so many do, don't they, who will ever think of Jesus, they just stop at a baby. If you stop at the nativity, you've got chapter one out of the 20 chapters of the mystery story. And if you stop at the man who teaches, and the man who does the miracles, and the man who, who all these things, you've only gone up to chapter 10. I'm thinking of the proportions of the scriptures of the gospels that, that talk about the death of Christ and even if you go to the death you've only gone up to chapter 18 because you can't leave out the resurrection and even then you need to know where he is now because it's in heaven now he saves us from our sins we re celebrate the birth of anyone don't we if we celebrate anyone's birth it's because of what they did in their life you do not celebrate if there is a national celebration, it, or perhaps even something is written in the Evangelical Times or whatever about an anniversary of someone's birth, why pick on that person? Because of what they did. And often they did one supreme thing. What did Jesus do? Well, he went about being the Christ, didn't he? The anointed one. He went about as the prophet, he went about doing good. And speaking the gospel. He went about teaching and doing miracles. And proving he is the one great last prophet. Whom God had said you must listen to him. He spoke of himself. Because of who he is. He had the absolute right. And the absolute necessity of speaking of himself. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Because people needed to know and there was no one else great enough to tell people that. He went about, if you like, it was a life of one great show and tell, wasn't it? Jesus told who he was and showed who he was. He is the prophet as the Christ. He is the priest. 
His death on the cross was an offering of himself. He was both priest and sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God and who offered the Lamb. He himself offered himself sinlessly as a substitute for sinners. Because he is the Christ. And he is the King. Because he is God's anointed King. I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. He rules, he still rules. He rules forever. He rules until he returns in order to save, to forgive, to receive sinners into his eternal kingdom. What does he say? What's the first words we have recorded of the Lord Jesus Christ? Preaching, repent for the kingdom and believe the good news for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. You can enter it. It's been open. The way is open. So he fulfills the functions of the Christ because he is the Lord and because he is the Lord who fulfilled successfully what the Christ is to be and to do, that's how he becomes the saviour. That's the order you have to say, isn't it? Here is the Lord who has become the baby to be the Christ Because he is the Lord, he can be the Christ and therefore the Saviour. And we are to proclaim this Saviour. Why, if you're a believer here, what is the grounds on which you are to proclaim the Saviour? Because he has saved you. Here are these shepherds again, verse 17. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marvelled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. If we go out today and try to tell everyone of the Saviour, we will sadly find that not many marvel. They think they've heard it. They think they know it, or they they think they know that someone somewhere has proved that it's not true, or that it's a dangerous thing to know. It's a divisive thing to say some people are saved and some people are lost. It's a controversial thing to say that people have we're all sinners. And we must repent and that we are under the judgment of God and that Jesus is the only saviour. And you go around telling people these things and you will have an awful lot of opposition. But it is still the responsibility of the Christian church to do this. And if you look in the New Testament, you get the perfect balance, I think. We must do, mustn't we? You must all think the balance is perfect. It's just what it is that mostly you find the gospel is preached by those whom God has set apart to do so, but also ordinary believers tell others and are always ready to give an answer concerning the hope that is within them. We are not all equally responsible for telling everybody all the time, but we are responsible for taking all the opportunities we have to tell others and we do need to pray so much that God will raise up many labourers in his harvest field and that he will give a great harvest let me say this then this is a great true 
truth here, isn't it? And a great true promise built on it. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, says Peter. He says that in Acts 2, in the day of Pentecost. And why can he say everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? Because Joel the prophet said it, and he's saying this is fulfilled. This has been fulfilled. It's true. How? Why? Because, verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There it is again, you see, the Saviour. The Lord, who his name is to be called on. The Lord and Christ. Let's make sure this Christmas that we haven't lost the wonder of this. We can be sentimental and miss it. We can be over-theological, I hope I haven't been that this afternoon, and miss it, where we get involved in the intricacies and miss the big picture. We need to be like the shepherds. They heard something amazing. They went and saw, they were full of wonder, and they went and told. That's the simplicity of it. Let's pray that God will enable us to be like that, to be truly Christians in the year that comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you and bless you, O Lord, for the wonder and the amazement of what you have done. Greater work than creation, a greater work than anything, that God becomes man. Greater love than any other ever shown. That you have sent your son to die in our place and save us from our sins. May he be central in all our life and thought and being. To your glory we pray in his name. Amen.